Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Darren Brown. Darren, as many of you know, is a fantastic magician. He calls himself a psychological illusionist, which is to say that the effects he achieves really are at the level of manipulating the behavior of his subjects. Uh, He uses hypnosis and other forms of suggestion. Uh, He creates the most elaborate ruses by which to manipulate people's expectations and assumptions. If you've seen any of his television specials, you'll know that he puts people in situations where literally everyone around them is an actor who's in on the gag, and people just have no way of understanding what is happening to them, and so he can drive them to do things that are really astonishing. Uh, In fact, if you haven't seen any of Darren's work, I would strongly encourage you to pause this podcast and go on YouTube and watch some of the many fragments of his specials that you can find there, or better yet, go on Netflix and watch his most recent one, Sacrifice, or Miracle before that, or The Push. Uh, We talk about all of these, and you'll certainly get the gist of our conversation if you haven't seen his work, but You'll enjoy it much more if you have, because it really is hard to exaggerate how ambitious these changes in people's behavior are and how successful Darren is in producing them. It really is amazing. Anyway, we talk about his career as an illusionist, his reliance on hypnosis and other forms of suggestion and manipulation. Uh, We talk a little bit about his book, Happy, where he goes into the value he's drawn from Stoic philosophy, and his other thoughts on how to live a good life. Anyway, Darren is a very thoughtful, interesting, uh, and extraordinarily nice person, and it was a great pleasure to sit down with him. So I hope you enjoy his company as much as I did. And now I bring you Darren Brown. I am here with Darren Brown. Hi. Darren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. This is yeah. so exciting. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. No, it really It's a treat. I've known I had to get you on the podcast for a very long time because you're quite literally one of my most requested guests. And Really? Yeah. But it's never come together. And then it always seemed that there was a some prospect of you coming to the States. But I, you, know, you and I connected in London recently when I had that event with Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. But we didn't record there. But now you are in And then we bonded over America. old fashions. Yes. Afterwards. Yeah. That was nice. That's a, an appropriate way to bond. So there are quite literally too many things to talk about. There's a ton that we can get into. Let's start with how you describe yourself as a psychological illusionist. Yeah. What are you doing as a magician? I mean, there's, there's so many, you do many things that I think a lot of people don't know about, but obviously we're going to be talking about your recent specials and your, and your magic, but how do you describe your approach to magic? Yeah, I, I don't know. I I mean, even that term psychological illusionist, I came up with in a panic when I was asked right at the start of my career what it is that, what it is that I do. I started off as a hypnotist when I was at I studied law and German at university in mm-hmm. Bristol in England. Did you actually get a degree as a lawyer? I did. I, I huh? didn't want to be a lawyer or a German. Yeah. Um, Think so about I, what a good lawyer you could be with your skills now, though. Well, you, yeah, <laughs> you I could. don't know. I, it's such a, it's a big... It just that was it was very little interest really. So yeah. I um but I got the degree. But but in my first year I saw a hypnotist perform and I so I started off 
with that, and uh, I bought, borrowed, stole books I could find on it. I uh, I was the guy at university who could hypnotize you, so I had lots of people turning up to be hypnotized. So, so that was. Did you, did you formally study it in a psychology department? No, or? no, 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 not at all. It was just just self taught. I had huh. a couple of. I remember a couple of seminal moments. I had a. I, I would often people would come over and I'd hypnotize them and I'd say. If you come back, if I click my fingers and tell you, if I click my fingers, you'll go straight back to sleep. So it would save time, right? If they came back the next week and right. wanted to try something else. And I remember this guy coming around who I presumed I'd seen before. And I said, okay, sit down, look at me. And I clicked my fingers and I said, sleep. And he went back into this, what I presumed was back into this trance state, whatever that is. Anyway, and then we did a few things. And then afterwards we spoke and he hadn't been, before. he hadn't, I'd never met him before. So I had this moment of, well, I, how did you know to respond to me clicking my fingers and saying sleep? And I realized sort of at that point that so much of it depended not on these long sort of scripts that I was learning and that, that side of technique, but just kind of my confidence in the moment and their own bewilderment, perhaps, obviously their own suggestibility. So things like that were taught me a lot. And then I, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult way of earning a living. And I was, I was graduating and I uh, was just starting to scrape a living together. So I, I did more magic, like close-up magic, that kind of thing. But the psychological stuff interested me more, the suggestion-based stuff. So did you learn it from books, or did you actually have a teacher who was a hypnotist? I, no, I didn't. I, I continued learning the hypnosis from, from books. This was pre, like, the days of There were YouTube, no YouTube videos. No, nothing. This was like 1935. Yeah. And uh, I ended up doing a lot more magic, but I... I found the, the mind-reading plots more interesting than, you know, making someone's card disappear. And so it, it, mentalism, mentalism is the technical name for it. When I, so I ended up, I wrote a couple of books for magicians. I was earning a living in Bristol, this said this city in the west of England, going around, you know, tables in restaurants and doing people's parties. And then I got a phone call from this TV production company that were looking for someone that did mind reading. And there were really only, I could only think of like four or five people in the country that did it. Mentalism, was that it esoteric? Was, huh. Yeah, just no one really, no one, it just wasn't very commercial. And yeah. uh, well, so To give people a sense, many people will be familiar with your work, but just give an example of the kind of thing a mentalist like well, yourself does on stage with people. It's, it's sort of, it's magic with a mind reading plot essentially but i mean i suppose someone that passes themselves off as psychic could be technically a mentalist so there's a wide range because i said not that many people do it so there's kind of a wide range of what people do when they do it now there's a lot more of them and that's probably partly because i was making it popular in the in the uk so if you were a young magician i guess you know growing up and i was you know a kind of a role model i suppose for some so there's a lot more mentalists now but it was the, the we were very few and far between before do your powers of mentalism extend to dogs? Can you get it that? does sound like yeah, a dog in the yeah, background. Yeah, right. I think it's someone moving plates or cutlery. Oh, okay. It might be building, right. but it does well, sound like a dog. Maybe I just, that's a powerful suggestion I just gave you, that it's a dog. <laughs> so that was that. And then I, yeah, I, but now I, um, essentially at its heart, a magician is just saying, look at me, aren't I clever? That is sort of, that's the only subtext. So as I grew up, I sort of grew out of that initial urge and the desire for uh, the sort of controlling thing, which hypnosis is, you know, is certainly ticks that box if, you've, mm -hmm. if you're insecure and those things are important to you, which I was. Did you ever go down the path of 
hypnosis as therapy? As to... therapy, I thought about it. I think ultimately I didn't really want to sit and get in there with people's problems, yeah. people's problems day after yeah. day. Now, I mean, now I find not so much hypnotherapy, but psychotherapy I find fascinating. That world I do find. I sort of mm. love to, part of me would love to do that. But no, I sort of, the, the, the performing came together in such a way that I had to kind of at some point choose and go, you know, I'll concentrate on this. But now I, it's quite a, I mean, I'm not very well known in the States at all, but in, in the UK, I kind of do a variety of things. I, I do stage shows every year that are like old fashioned magic shows, really. Again, with kind of a, you know, mind reading sort of feel to them. And uh, I do these TV shows now on Netflix, which are, Again, they're very different, but they're sort of, what I've done is I've tried to take a step back and I, I kind of figured that it's dramatically more interesting if you're watching a real person go through a real situation. So the deception is now all out on the surface. So you're, as a viewer, you're invited into the deception. Right. And it's, the deception is, is happening on somebody that's going through something they don't right. realize. Well, I want to talk about several of your specials in, in detail, but before we get there, let's just talk for a second about hypnosis so it's mm. so, hypnosis is a topic that isn't often touched i don't think it came up once while i got a phd in neuroscience right i'm right. sure i'm sure there's a there's been some neuroscientific work done on hypnosis the only time i touched it as a topic academically i, I was freshman year at stanford where i think stanford still has the scale of oh, yes. hypnotic susceptibility right. yeah, i think yeah scale, i think yeah. It, it, it predates my time there but i remember being tested on this scale because they were looking for good and, and bad subjects to do research and which were you in, in, i think it was a 10 point scale and i think i was a nine on the 10 wow. so I, I was on that side of the tail and then i remember going through these various exercises and the experience that proved to me that this wasn't just total bullshit that this there was something to this was we were regressed to how was it put they asked us to imagine that we are eight years old i think or seven years old and sign our names mm. and without any conscious forethought the script that came out of my signing was just this bubbly childlike script that was totally familiar to me as something the way i would have written my name as a seven-year-old and it was not at all the way i wrote my name as a 18 year old and then he asked put the the year and i remember marveling at the fact that without any conscious arithmetic you know i was putting down the yeah. right year from yeah. you know that, that did age. you ever compare the handwriting you know if it was actually i don't remember going back and finding a sample of my handwriting if i could have but it was just the spitting image of the kind of writing yeah. and and i just remember it feeling like an automaticity that i was mm. not you know i wasn't gaming the system you know trying to impress myself with mm. hypnosis working and I, i've spent no time studying it since but it's one of these topics where I think you can talk to scientists who are still in doubt as to whether or not it's actually a bona fide phenomenon. And then it obviously connects to vaudevillian applications of it, which where wherein it seems appropriate to wonder whether there's a fraud associated with what you're seeing on stage. So what is your understanding of the reality of hypnosis as a psychological process that can be invoked on I, stage? I used to do a, um, in a when I performed stage hypnosis which i don't anymore but I, I try and find other ways of employing it but i used to finish with saying that i'd make myself invisible so the subjects wouldn't be able to see me 
and then say so I'd, I'd float a chair around and they'd all you know scream and run around and it was you know a fun bit in the show but then I often used to have questions and answers afterwards and I remember once I, I got say there were 10 guys I got them up and said well what what was your actual experience when I was saying I was invisible and moving mm. a chair around what what were you actually experiencing and there were some that were saying well you know I I yeah, I was just felt like I should play along, but yeah, you were obviously just moving the chair around yourself. Then there were people that would say, "Well, I, I kind of, I knew you were doing it, but I had, just had to emotionally. I could only react as if that thing was floating, even though, yeah, of course, when I think back as well, I, I yeah, you were obviously there doing it, but I, I, I kind of was disregarding that. And a range of reactions, right through to, there's no way you were moving that chair because that was that was floating. I, you know, they're more happy to believe it was on wires than it was me. Now I still don't know whether that whole discussion is coloured by the fact that some people want to appear to be better subjects than others. But certainly, right. what is clear is that the range of experience is so varied. I always think of it as a sort of like an actor getting into a part. You you can get totally emotionally lost in something. It doesn't mean that anything untoward is is happening uh I, I are you ever have you experimented with giving people post-hypnotic suggestions that they seem to be genuinely unaware of so that they're doing things that originate in a truly unconscious space in their minds and you've you've yeah, put but the again, seed there because you can never really climb into anyone's head to really know i remember telling a, a, a friend of mine that he was he'd find himself invisible and he was really he was laughing he was looking down and saying it's just like looking at a footage of like the carpet and you know i'm just it's like i'm looking out of a a camera I, I, I think one of the most for me one of the most interesting experiences of it was i did a show called um the assassin so stephen fry is right. gonna get yeah, that. shot yeah. by this guy and we had this sort of first part was just looking at hypnosis what is it what are the limitations of it so this is a just give people yes. the, the yes okay the setup here. So how is Stephen Fry going to get shot? Yes, I throw these things away because <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of used to them. Yeah. All right. So the, the show was actually looking at the claims made by Sahan Sahan over the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, him saying that he was hypnotized by the CIA. So we kind of, well, is it, if we take what his claims are, is that even feasible that that could happen? Or is it just the stuff of, you know, just fiction? Right. So as closely as we could, we kind of replicated his story and did it with a guy that didn't know that that was the plan for him. So we found a very highly suggestible guy, even more suggestible than you, I'm sure. Right. And there was only one point on the scale, if I recall. Only that, one that, guy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, the show begins with finding that guy from a sort of a big audience of, of people who are volunteering and ends with him in a situation which he doesn't know is being filmed with a gun that he thinks is real all the triggers going off, the polka dot dress and all these things that Sahan Sahan said the, said the CIA had used. And will he do it? Will he, in that situation, fire a gun, which he believes is real, at somebody and, and seemingly shoot them? But there was this really interesting bit at the beginning. So I've got these two clinical hypnotists, psychologists with me as well. And we did two tests. One was the acid test, which is where the, where the notion and the phrase comes from, where you have somebody hypnotized you give them what you've shown them is acid before they're hypnotized, but actually it's just water. And you say, when you wake up and you get the signal, you'll throw this acid in someone's face. Right. So it's an interesting thing. Like if they, if they're playing along at any level, of course, they're not going to do that. They all did it. But 
it's a TV studio. They know no one's really going to give them, you know, acid to do that. So part of the brain you get, part of them is going to know this is, right. this is safe. And that's fine. That's what we imagine they do. But then towards the end, we had this guy in an ice bath. And this was the guy that we used in the end. And we just had no idea if he was going to do it or not. Either way, it was fine for the show. If he didn't do it, that was interesting. If he did do it, that was interesting. And he did very happily. He got in this ice bath and lay there. And there was no, it didn't seem, they're actually, they had a bet backstage, like a wager as to whether or not he'd do it. They thought he wouldn't do it. I had no idea. But there didn't seem to be the sort of thing that you could just play along. Yeah. Pretending on, not to yeah, find a cold. Exactly. Yeah. Just kind yeah. of pretend not to, uh, not to find that you know, intensely painful. And that's one of the very like few moments that I've had of just being really surprised by it. The other thing that surprises me is again, if, if it's just sort of a playing along, is behaviors that people wouldn't know to do that get shared across, say, an audience. So very often I'm I'm doing this with an audience of two thousand people mm. and then walking out amongst those people that have responded who say are now standing, eyes closed, like, you know, head dropped down. Right. In your special before the most recent one, Miracle, Miracle you did yeah. this, right? Let's dive into some of what you're doing here mm-hmm. with the specials. Because it's not, there's hypnosis, which is this one specific activity of inducting someone into a state and mm. leading them to do various things uh, you know, post-hypnotically. But you're also just playing with people's suggestibility yeah. a lot. You're pre-screening your audiences in many of these specials in ways that sometimes I guess they know they're being pre-screened. Sometimes they have no idea. They think they're taking a course in, you know, self-improvement or whatever it is. And you are continually selecting for the most suggestible people or the most conforming people, Mm. whether it's they're conforming to social pressure or showing themselves to be vulnerable to you, just, you know, dropping the right words into their, into their heads. Yeah. So you've had so many specials that I would love to talk about, but should we go chronologically? I want to talk about the push mm-hmm. and I want to talk about miracle and I want to talk about sacrifice. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. There's that, three most recent ones. So that yeah. one, that oh, is it? Okay. So let's talk about the push. What did you do there? So the push, the push was looking at social compliance and it was a, a big, dark, fun, funny kind of experiment. It took, we did it over a, a weekend to see if somebody could be made to commit murder through just through social compliance. So there's a big event that this guy finds himself at. Everyone's an actor apart from him. He has no idea it's being filmed. He's applied to be in the show months ago and then, you know, told he hadn't got it. So he just finds himself at this event and bit by bit, starting with, he sort of gets roped into helping at the event. So starting with him being asked to mislabel meat sausages, meat right. sausage rolls as vegetarian. Yeah. And him kind of, you know, going along with that, it builds and builds and builds to the point that he pushes or doesn't push someone off a roof. By stages, you're selecting for somebody who is willing to, under some pressure of authority, it's like yeah. a mini Milgram experiment. In fact, you actually yeah. do the Milgram experiment in that yeah. episode, in a different, That was a different, spe- yeah, but we used to Oh, it was yeah, a different, yeah. okay. Um, we, did a, we did a compliance test, which is the bell test you may have seen where people are coming in, you've got a being made to stand up and sit down when they hear a bell because the first yeah, few people in exactly. the row are actors yeah. and then you build the line up the actors right. then leave and now you've got a room of people doing it for no for right. no reason just out of again just out of compliance so yeah so we've chosen this guy he's then told he's not used and then sometime later he just is at this event that we've you know right. constructed this whole way of getting in there without him knowing it's anything to do with us 
So he's at an event where literally everyone in sight is in on the gag. Yeah. But he's just surrounded by actors yeah. and doesn't know it. Absolutely. Watching it, it's pretty remarkable to realize how unusual a circumstance that is and how we are not prepared to interpret reality with mm. that being one of the possible explanations for what's going on. Absolutely. Right? Well, the, the, the fear that we've had over the years of, you know, what if, what if he spots a camera or what if there's a glitch in this Truman Show-like fiction? But of course, the reality is, if you were in a if you were in a restaurant and a camera fell out from behind the curtains, you you wouldn't think everyone here is an everyone actor. here is an actor. This yeah. whole thing is some yeah. elaborate. You know, you just oh, a camera's falling out from behind the curtains. You wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily make that, make right. that all about you know right. make the whole thing. It's about all you. about me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. there have been moments when uh, you know a, ca- a camera's been has been spotted or just some something like that has happened, and we're all you know suddenly all sphincters are tight and it's fine you know nothing nothing bad happens at all so we've kind of uh kind of got used to it but it's yeah we've kind of got good at being able to create and hold these elab there's a whole other show with each one of these and just how you create that how you create the fiction how you get the guy to the point that because also these people have to be you have to make sure they're robust enough psychologically to go through these quite dark journeys so they have to be independently vetted this is my daughter's, my 10-year-old daughter's question for you is... <laughs> How'd you know they're fine? How are you not in jail for what you put people through? That's her literal wording. Because you're putting, I mean, some of these, some more than others, but for instance, the push, there is a real ethical question about what you're doing here because you're, in some cases, you're making people look very, very good. As we'll talk about in Sacrifice, mm. you reveal this person's latent heroism. Mm. But in the push you are revealing a very dark fact about somebody, or at least it can be interpreted as a very dark mm, fact. And mm. how do you view that? I mean, so it's just to fast forward to the punchline of that show, I mean, the, and spoiler alert for anyone who wants to go watch these shows, in some cases, yes, you get someone to reveal that they're capable of murder. Yeah. You know, he shoves a guy off a rooftop based on all the suggestibility that you have engineered in him. That doesn't look great on his CV, does it? <laughs> well, I, I, that I think the push was, I think, uniquely dark and unredemptive. And it, was it two of the three people? It did was it? four in the end. Yeah, four, four okay. of them, and three out of the four did. Three it. out of the four did. Yeah. The way I, the way I see these things with with all of the shows, and I always have well, with any of the shows, regardless of whether it's sort of a you know a, a happy ending or whatever it brings out in the person, they're always they're very often going through a kind of a dark period of the sort of journey at some point. So I do get asked about ethically how they can be justified. My feeling is I'm really only interested in this one person's experience that is going through it. So in the push, for example, it's, well, it's hard to talk about without giving it away, but the guy, the guy that doesn't do it has been through hell to get there, Yeah, but he feels great about himself. So he's... Very happy with the experience, and then the 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 careful situation is is framing the whole thing for the others. So by the point they come to do it, there are so many things that I've layered in during their what has essentially been their audition process. Though they don't realise it's an audition process. The number of meetings that they've had, they think they're one of three hundred people doing that, but actually by this point, it's only that five. There's things that can be layered in so that very quickly, obviously at any point during, I can you know step in and if need be. And the whole thing, but also afterwards, the whole thing can be framed very quickly for them, again as something positive. And that—that's probably the most 
difficult, not difficult, but the most, uh, of, of all the situations of having to make sure that something is a positive experience for them to take away, mm. that's probably the most, like, would appear to be the most kind of conflicting. But actually for them, they all found it very positive because their feeling is, I've now been through this, and yes, I did that, but most people do, and that's what we've shown. That's right. not like anything unusual about me, because that's yeah. what most people do. But I'm, I'm now armed with an experiential, you know, well, that experience of having done it. So if ever I find myself in a situation where I'm going to get manipulated, I've been through that now, and I can stand up to it. And, and that's, kind, that's the key to me. And then obviously, these are all people that remain friends, and we all keep in touch, and uh -huh. none of them have had that other thing we might think of, well, that mean they're not going to get it. A job, or you know, people are right. fascinated by their experience, but none of them have had those those right. troubles. But I think that show is unique in that 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 question is, I think, probably most obvious with that. As mm. well, you know, are those people okay? And the answer is, they are. They always are. Everyone that's done these things comes out of it saying it's you know it's the best thing they've ever done, and that ultimately, to me, is what matters. Even though, of course, I understand people stepping back from it and going, well, how can you how can you justify it and so on? Yeah. So then there's the flip side of your experience and the necessity to deceive people to just get this show up and running. Mm. How do you navigate that ethically? And because they know what they're getting into. They're applying for my shows and they know the sort of things that, that I do. Right. And I think, I think it's a end justifying the means thing. I think for, you know, if somebody's going to go through something that takes, there's a lot of manipulation involved, but the end result is a, Mm. is a hugely positive one for them. I think it's. I think that's okay. To compare this to normal magic or normal yeah. illusion, so your normal stage magic is a situation where there's a trick. You, as a professional ma magician, don't want to reveal how the trick is done. Yeah. It's not done the way it seems to be done. It seems to be done by magic, and there's some terrestrial answer compatible with the laws of physics that explains how the trick is done, and that's the part you don't reveal. With these manipulations of people... They're absolutely what they are, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, there's my, my no, question no... is, is there any distance between the audience's final appreciation of what has happened and what has in fact happened? No, not at all, not at okay. all. There are sometimes scenes that don't make it, scenes that have to get, you know, squashed down and bits, that, as you will be editing anything. So, right. I mean, Phil in Sacrifice, for example, had um, a couple of experiences that didn't make the final show. And there was a whole lot of other stuff we did with all the applicants that took part in the show that didn't make it. So there's always things like that. That's just part of putting a, yeah, a show together. To but no, it, yeah. in, in terms of, you know, is he playing along or is he, does he know more about what's going on than I'm letting on or anything right. like that? Then no, right. it would be, it would be pointless and just sort of repugnant as well. I think we are yeah. artistically repugnant and yeah. just pointless to do that. Well, yeah, so, but it would be a, a kind of fraud, but it's interesting to consider that it's, they're just gradations of fraud which account for magic. It's, it's hard to know really where the line is. Yeah, I suppose so. But I think you then it's it's a different category of Yeah, I I I for me I the the as I said, the fiction is something that we're sharing in, the deception is something we're sharing in. And I, I save the the kind of theatrical deception that everybody knows that it's part of the game for the stage shows now. Right. So I think that kind of makes that makes sense. And even then I I, I try and push it in a to a place that it's I, I guess, cause, you know, I'm 47 and doing magic is quite a childish thing. So I try and find more interesting things to do with the, with the sort of technologies of magic, I guess. And, and which ultimately is just, for me, is just about the stories that people tell themselves. That's, that's kind of my toolkit. So one direction that can go in is creating these 
specials where somebody's put through something and it is ultimately about the stories they tell themselves and and maybe challenging those stories or the limitations of those narratives that they're living out and then i save the more kind of uh yeah, the more I just kind of look at me, aren't I clever? But it, right. I still try and do try and do right. something more interesting with it for the stage. So yeah, it seems to me that your your topic through all of these shows is a question about what are the actual origins of human behavior and what role belief and framing and expectation and suggestion and environment play in all of that. You really are doing a real time psychological study of people in odd situations and it's fascinating to watch but there are these moments where the effect you're achieving seems impossible i actually can't remember which show this was this could be they're smithereens for me because i my daughter and i binge watched so many of them in pieces but you had one where based on the mere association of a few things like the sound of music playing from a passing car oh yeah, yeah you got people to basically perform an armed robbery yeah. of the pinkertons or the brinks people who were bringing money to in or out of a bank and the idea that that suggestion could be that powerful that someone would have you know yeah but it's not just it's not just music from the car i mean that there's a whole process that you follow of of basically conditioning which is essentially the same in sacrifice and i've used this process a lot I, yeah. I i tend to sort of think well i need to get somebody to this point so how does that break down in terms of the things they need to feel at that point and then eliciting those feelings attaching them to some sort of trigger so that you know it's it's the same as if you i always think of the example of breaking up with somebody and having a horrible time doing that but there's a song that's just playing a lot on the radio at the mm. time and then you don't hear it for five years and then you hear it again and it just immediately just brings you back into that state but here we have a complex behavior that is not only starkly antisocial but can send someone to prison right yeah it's like this is a major decision to rob a bank yeah yes it was holding up a holding holding up the the security what i'm doing but you're sort of i'm presenting those triggers so there were like three or four i can't even quite remember what they all were but three or four different different triggers and then this sort of tantalizingly available scenario which is again yeah. quite unrealistic but right so it's just all it's just all so kind of impossibly fortuitous that it all happens so i, right. I don't to me it isn't a surprise i think well well the surprise is i think over the years that people do just sort of follow these tracks that if you pick somebody that's suggestible you pick the right sort of person and they've been through this transformative thing that's lasted for however long we've been filming for built up these associations it's going to happen i mean if you imagine if you imagine it was a room of people some of those people in the room you get would do it but then what would be the difference between those people and the others well they'd probably be more suggestible those those ideas would be would be dropping in at a much more impactful level than most of the room but then those are the people i'm using i mean they're kind of experiments in one sense in another sense i mean they're clinically not really that interesting because it's not like I'm doing it with a large number of people or I haven't, I haven't got a control group in the you know in the next room doing it without the various triggers. Well, well you keep them, so. losing your control group. You keep just not yeah, selecting exactly, those people. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's it's more of a kind of here's an emotional journey to go through and maybe that might make you think about things you know in your own life. It's more that kind of world. I see it more as a sort of kind of a drama ultimately. But the the 
mode, the feeling of an experiment is, is the way that that's expressed. What's your take on free will, given the fact that you manipulate people wherever you go to do things that they can't explain? I like, I, I like that there's both. I like that if you look at it in one way, of course there's no free will. You can look at it another way and you can go, yes, but ultimately we can, we can exercise our choice and make a difference to a situation. And I sort of, I'm quite happy to, I'm quite happy to sit with both. I know uh -huh. I feel silly saying this, saying this to you, but, um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, there's definitely one level at which it makes conventional sense to talk about choices. I mean, choices yeah. are the proximate cause of the thing you then decide to do. But when you try to figure out where your choices come from mm. and just how much control you as the witness of your experience had over those variables, Mm. You know, from genes on up. Of course, you know. yeah. But I still think, I still think, I, I there was that experiment at the Max Planck Institute with the, um, this, this is where this idea came that we make our decisions, uh, anything up to seven seconds unconsciously before we, before we make them conscious. You know, you must know this with the yeah, we, subjects well, yeah, yeah. pressing well, uh, a, a or B and they're like. Benjamin LeBay, yeah. The, that's the, the, the it, Le, Le, yes. LeBay experiments, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those tantalizingly, they tell the story of the readiness potential in mm. the premotor cortex being available, in this case, like 500 milliseconds before the motor behavior, or actually 500 milliseconds before the person's subjective report of when they decided to move. So they're, mm. they're watching a clock that is you know, made so as to make it as easy as possible to discriminate these increments of time. And is that they're given the simplest possible motor task, you know, hit the button or not, mm, you know, hit mm. the left button or hit the right button. And their mind is genuinely open and not committed for whatever period of time. And then when they subjectively are aware of having committed, they note where the hand was on this special mm. clock. And lo and behold, it was a full half second before that mm. where you could predict with. I forget what the actual but didn't details were, but like ninety percent like seconds or something ridiculous. At one well, then point? they yeah. then there was an fMRI study that pushed that all the way back to like seven seconds, yeah. where you could get a better than chance prediction. So I've always found it a strange experiment because it feels it feels to me contaminated by the idea of don't think about it before you do it. So of course you start right. to think about is it A or B, and then I and then you but then you, 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 you do you the could, opposite, but, or yeah, I, but you I, could I, suddenly do the opposite. But the truth is. All of that research is really a red herring. It's, right. it's, it's okay. not well, that's what, that's what it feels like. I mean, to me, you, you don't right. actually need the neurophysiological story to know that there must be some chain of events of which you are not conscious that actually underwrite mm. what you are conscious of, and any conscious deliberation would fall into that category. So, yeah. Well, I, I have no argument with that. I, I, I enjoy both. Both sides, I, I, but I don't. I don't think that um, you know. With obviously what I'm doing, I'm creating the the illusion of that sort of control most of the time. So I don't. I don't see my work as a sort of. Uh, but you're still putting people in positions where they are strangers to themselves, in that they're doing things that they can't account for, but you can account for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose mean, so. Yeah, to, well, a, to I, a remarkable degree. I mean, everyone's doing this to everyone all the time, less systematically. I mean, you know, advertisers are trying to get us to click their links, mm. or and 
you know, that's probably the most systematic version that we all encounter. But for you to be putting people in situations where you're hoping that at that moment they're going to push a guy off a roof, mm. and you, but then you, some of them did and some of them didn't. I mean, I'm yeah, laying down well, all these, I'm laying down <laughs> you, these tracks for them. Right, right. Seventy-five percent did, and yeah. the ones who did did it a hundred percent. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about sacrifice because this is a genuine happy ending, and it it's appearing in the context of a political environment where it seems all too of the moment. Give us the setup. What is the show? Well, actually, it was, it was because pu- the the push was the uh, the push was the first show on. Netflix. I'd already done it, it'd already been out in the UK before, but it was the first thing on Netflix. And then Miracle, which was my stage show, but Push was right. like the last sort of special that I'd done. And I felt like I had to do something that was sort of the opposite of it and, and was more redemptive. And so, so rather, rather, life, rather than is, reveal the a propensity to commit murder so on, on the spot, yeah, yeah, this is the, this this is, the opposite. Yeah, okay. So, um, so what is So the, the premise is using these kind of covert psychological techniques, trying to get a right-wing Trump-supporting American guy with pretty, pretty strong views against illegal immigration, if not immigrants yeah. generally, to take a bullet to lay down his life for a Mexican illegal immigrant, or at least someone he believes is. So that was the premise of the show. It's a crazy premise. It's a crazy premise. I mean, I mean you could have walked that back a little bit, and <laughs> still it would have been a, an ambitious undertaking. Yeah, well, it's sort of the way it... When we initially kind of put the show together, I intended it to have more of a overtly kind of political feel to it. So in what you see at the start of the show, which is a hundred people coming together and I'm choosing the guy I'm going to use, we had a whole day of really interesting experiments were going on. We were doing Jonathan Haidt's work on changing the environment to, he writes about it in The Righteous Mind. I think perhaps it isn't actually yeah. his, but one of his colleagues making the room disgusting, leaving right. fake vomit and a n- nasty smell. And, and the idea is by, by having those feelings of threat and contamination that you could make otherwise liberal-minded people give more conservative sociopolitical answers to questions they'd already right. answered in more liberal ways earlier on. And vice versa, making uh, conservatives more liberal, which is another well-known experiment of inducing a feeling of invincibility first. So you're undoing that feeling of, of, of threat, which seems to be um, allied to uh, more right-wing views. So we did, had a whole lot of stuff that was really fascinating. All of this ended up coming out because it felt in the end the show was more elegant to make it about a, a human quality of compassion and kindness and, and, and stepping outside of these kind of political narratives. So in the end, you know, Trump was never mentioned, and 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 also that thing of I'm mean, I'm not American. It's always a bit ugly and uncomfortable when somebody from somewhere else comes in and seems to be passing comment on right. you know on your own system. So I I and I think the show's better for it. There was just a lot more that we could have put into it, but in the end, it's it's a a story about I think somebody's you know stepping outside of the constraints of those kind of uh, narratives. Do you have a hard time limit for these Netflix specials? Do they have to come in right at an hour? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Uh, I think originally we were imagining it would be like an hour and a half, but as we stripped more and more out and it it got down, I think it's about 47 minutes or something now, which is what the show, what an hour of TV certainly used to be with ads in it, at least in the UK. So you've selected this right-wing 
somewhat conspiratorial character who is opposed to immigration and wasn't floridly racist. No, he's not a monster racist. I think which would have been a different show. I think yeah. then it would have been about you know look at look how clever I am to be able to to be able to transform this monster racist guy into a, into yeah. a nice guy, which I didn't want the show to be about. So I wanted somebody you'd kind of relate to. So. Although at the beginning... What was the worst view he expressed? I can't quite... Well, I, I, I'm so inundated saying, with this kind of material now, studying white supremacy and all the rest of it. <laughs> he was saying, you know, yeah, kick them all out and they're going to turn our country to shit. And so he was quite okay. kind of, uh, yeah, quite clear right. in that. And um, yeah, he actually wanted people kicked out, right? It wasn't just... Yeah, to, build the wall, is, is, build a bigger wall. But it's um, not just a matter of not letting more in. No, no. Let's it was, just, it was, yeah, let's, yeah, okay. yeah. But, you know, like a lot okay. of people, he's dealing with difficulties in his own life financially and yeah. uh, particularly and he's seeing these you know these what to him are people coming in and getting free handouts and it's that it's that sort of narrative that is that he settled into very comfortably right okay so you have the perfect subject what does he think he's if you'd like to continue listening to this podcast you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org you'll get access to all full-length episodes of the making sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.